I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I look at old newspapers on the day of a famous event in history. And then I pretty much ignore the important event and look at the other headlines to find out what else was being reported around the country on the exact same day. Today's major event took place more than 130 years ago. In some ways, it was the ultimate sign of westward expansion and people hoping for the American dream. In other ways, it was a symbol of broken promises. Our famous date is April 22nd, 1889. And I'm looking at a headline from the Wichita Daily Journal out of Kansas. This headline reads, Now Open, a mad rush for the promised land. Seven weeks earlier, President Benjamin Harrison announced that on April 22nd, almost 2 million acres of land that had previously been Indian territory would be opened up for white settlement. People from all over saw this announcement as their chance to have something of their own, and they began flocking to Oklahoma in droves. Cities made of tents and wagons and temporary shelters started popping up all over the area as people made plans for businesses and farms. In just a few weeks, between 50 and 60,000 people showed up. Want to know something funny? The people congregating in Oklahoma were given a nickname. Boomers. Nowadays, if someone calls you a boomer, it has nothing to do with Oklahoma. Something that was new to me was that those who snuck out into the land area early also had a nickname. They were called Sooners. Even though my husband watches a lot of college football, and I knew that the University of Oklahoma team is known as the Sooners, it never occurred to me to figure out why they had that name. Now I know. Anyway, I'm going to quote directly from the article in the Wichita Daily Journal. It says, April 22nd, 5 a.m., the one great eventful day of the 19th century, the Oklahoma opening day, is now drawing upon us. The sky is clear and bright and bids fair for a beautiful day for the great occasion. This city is perfectly alive with boomers. The article goes into great detail about which lands were the most sought after and how people planned to get them. At exactly noon that day, the masses were set free and the race was on to be the first to stake a claim on the prize properties. In just a matter of hours, entire cities were formed. Now, learning about the Oklahoma land rush is fascinating, but this podcast isn't about the super famous events. It's about the events hidden behind the famous events. If you want to know more about the land rush, I'll post a link in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group. Or you can watch one of my guilty pleasure movies, Far and Away, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Now, let's get to the good stuff. My first additional history story comes from the April 22nd, 1889 issue of the Hazleton Sentinel out of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. 
Since the newspaper copy I looked at is more than 130 years old, its age shows in the crumbling edges and holes worn through. Next to an article about the boomers in Oklahoma is a headline that simply reads, A Terrible Crime. The article tells the sad story of the family of W.P. Wood of Mason County. Now, I'm not sure exactly what state Mason County is in because that detail isn't given in this particular article, but I'm pretty sure it was either North Carolina or Georgia. Anyway, W.P. Wood was described in the article as an industrious and sturdy farmer. The article said that Mr. Wood had worked hard for years and saved and saved until he had a few hundred dollars extra saved up after he paid for all the needs of his family. Unfortunately, the Wood farm wasn't close to any banks, so Mr. Wood kept all of his money hidden inside his house. And the fact that he kept all of his wealth hidden inside his house was a fact that apparently wasn't a secret. All of his neighbors knew about his habit. One day, Mr. Wood got called away from his house. The article didn't say why he got called away or where he went when he left, but it did say that he left on a Monday and didn't return to his home until that Friday. As he approached his house, Mr. Wood came upon a scene that was absolutely horrifying. Instead of his wife and children running outside to meet him as he arrived home, he found a pile of ashes where his home used to be. Mr. Wood, hoping for the best, immediately set out for his nearest neighbors to find his family. After all, if they escaped, and he was sure they had escaped, they would have gone to a neighbor's home seeking shelter, right? The nearest neighbor to the Wood family farm was five miles away. When Mr. Wood got to the house, the neighbor said they hadn't seen his family, and they didn't know his house had burned down since their homes were so far apart. Mr. Wood went to the next neighbor, and then the next neighbor and then the next. Nobody had seen or heard anything about Mr. Wood's family. By this point, Mr. Wood was starting to worry. His neighbors offered to join in the search and together they decided to go back to the scene, back to the pile of ashes he called home. Now, when Mr. Wood had originally seen his home, he didn't even look at it or try to go inside the rubble. In his mind, there was no way his family wouldn't have gotten out alive. According to him, his wife never slept well, and she woke up at the slightest sound. And with five kids in the house, I'm sure it was always a busy, noisy place. Unfortunately, as the neighbors and Mr. Wood searched the home, they found evidence that proved the situation was far worse than anyone had originally thought. They found axes, clubs, and two bowie knives, all of the weapons were covered in blood. It appeared that the worst possible thing had happened to Mrs. Wood and her three sons and two daughters. I can imagine that Mr. Wood was distraught at the news. And then as the search continued, they found the trunk where he kept all of his extra money. It had been opened and the contents dug through. And then, friends, the article cuts off. Remember how at the beginning of this story, I said that the newspaper was old and fraying and filled with holes? Well, the rest of the article was completely gone, and I couldn't read the end of the story. Did they find the bodies? Was anyone still alive? Did they catch the thieves and murderers? 
was Mr. Wood actually involved in the event and committed the murders knowing his neighbors wouldn't see the house burn? I mean, the fact that he never checked the house until the neighbors came sounds pretty suspicious, right? Anyway, I wasn't too worried about finding answers to all my questions because the Hazleton Sentinel was the first place I saw the article and a story like that would surely be printed in other papers. I started searching and found references to the incident in quite a few papers from that day. However, the story in the Hazleton Sentinel and an exact copy of that same article in the Evening Leader, a Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania newspaper, were the only articles I could find that told the version of events as I just told them to you. Every other paper I looked in, and it was quite a few, reported a completely different version of events. According to the other articles, Mr. Wood was away for whatever reason, and when he came home, he found his home burned. That's where the similarities end. According to every other article I saw, he knew right away that the fire must have started from a pile of leaves they'd been burning before he left. The fire didn't completely go out and it spread to the house, turning the place into nothing but flames while his family slept. His children's bodies were all found in their beds as if they'd slept right through the fire. His wife's body was found on the floor near the bed. My guess is that she woke up and tried to save her children, but was overwhelmed by the smoke instead. None of the other articles mentioned anything about bloody bowie knives or a missing trunk full of money. As we've discovered in more than one episode of this podcast, not everything in the news is correct. In the late 1800s, newspapers wanted to sell as many papers as they could for as much profit as they could. In 1889, Hazleton, Pennsylvania had just under 12,000 people, and it's about 100 miles away from Philadelphia. With communication between towns and papers limited, newspapers could print what they wanted and people weren't going to call them out on it. In fact, there was even a term for this that started being used just a few years later. They called it yellow journalism. The newspapers knew that a story of a leaf pile burning a home filled with people to the ground was sad. But a story of a family being robbed and then murdered before having their house burned down was much more likely to sell newspapers. I'm convinced this story is a case of yellow journalism. And I'll admit it, the first version of the story pulled me in. If I had been alive in 1889, I would have bought a copy of the paper. What about you, friends? Which version of events do you think is the most accurate? For my next additional history story, I'm sticking with the Hazleton Sentinel and the Evening Leader, since they printed another duplicate article on their front pages. Luckily, the Evening Leader didn't have holes in it, and I was able to read the entire version of the second article. This headline reads, A Mystery Cleared Away. This article tells the story of a bark ship called the Wandering Minstrel. I didn't know what a bark ship was and had to look it up. Apparently, it's a ship that has at least three masts. In late 1887, the wandering minstrel set sail from Honolulu on a shark fishing expedition to a series of islands in the Pacific. The ship's captain was a man named Frederick Dunbar Walker, and the first mate was John Cameron. Captain Walker's wife and children also went along on the journey. 
Now, the trip was supposed to be a long one, and they intended to be gone for at least nine months. But for the people they left behind on the shore, those months came and went, and nobody heard from the crew of the wandering minstrel. Many more months passed, and people assumed this ship had been lost at sea. It was just another of many maritime accidents of the time. But then, according to the article, the passengers of the ship were found. They had wrecked on the islands of Midway. Yes, friends, this is the same Midway made famous in World War II. Midway pretty much consists of two islands, Sand Island and Eastern Island. In February of 1888, the passengers aboard the Wandering Minstrel became stranded, but as they soon discovered, they weren't the only people on the island. A year or so earlier, another ship had wrecked at Midway. That ship was called the General Seagull, and that ship's crew did not get along with each other after they wrecked. The crew fought with the captain and the ship's carpenter, a man from Denmark with the last name of Jorgensen, and the details of what happened with the crew of the General Seagull. The details of what happened with the crew of the General Seagull vary greatly depending on which person told the story. According to Jorgensen, one of the crew members lost his hand in an accident and continuously cried out in pain. The complaining and crying started to get on the captain's nerves, so he poisoned the man. Then, again according to Jorgensen, the captain went to Eastern Island with another crew member in search of supplies, but he came back alone. The captain claimed the other man had accidentally shot himself while they were on Eastern Island. Jorgensen said he went to Eastern Island with the captain to look at the body. The man had been shot in the back of the head. Needless to say, Jorgensen was getting pretty nervous and feared for his own life, but he decided to play it cool and not risk his own life by calling him out. The captain had gone off alone to explore Eastern Island, and when it came time to leave, Jorgensen couldn't find him. He searched and called the captain's name, but the captain was nowhere to be found. Finally, Jorgensen gave up and returned to Sand Island. The rest of the crew, despite the previously suspicious behavior of the captain, didn't believe Jorgensen's story. When they managed to fix up a ship enough to get themselves off the island, they left Jorgensen behind to fend for himself in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Now, some of the men of the General Seagull did eventually make it back to civilization, but they told a different story and insisted Jorgensen was the murderer. I'm not sure what to believe, but I do know that Jorgensen had been stranded on the island for at least a year before those aboard the Wandering Minstrel found themselves shipwrecked in the exact same spot. Jorgensen was very happy to have people to talk to again. In the self-titled book, John Cameron's Odyssey, first mate Cameron said the poor man couldn't stop talking and followed him around telling story after story of what had happened to him until Cameron finally fell asleep. Eventually, the two men became a good team, and they worked together to keep Morel up on the island and assist the people in getting food and shelter. According to Cameron, Captain Walker was pretty much useless, and it was his fault they were shipwrecked, because he refused to listen to reason and was too scared to take action when a huge storm came up on them. Anyway, the Midway Islands weren't tropical islands where there's trees heavily laden with coconuts and pineapple and other tropical fruits are easily found. Nope, none of that. 
However, there were two things that were extremely plentiful on the islands. First, there was fish, of course, and second, there were seabirds. Hundreds and hundreds of seabirds. In the many months Jorgensen had spent alone on the island, he'd learned to grill and cook the birds and to harvest their eggs. Before the wandering minstrel arrived, he'd stored 10,000 eggs for himself. The mills were monotonous, but for the most part, it kept everyone alive. Finally, after nearly a year on the island, John Cameron, Jorgensen, and a boy from China who'd been part of the crew set off in a ship they'd rigged up while stranded. Somehow, the trio miraculously made it to Honolulu, where another ship was dispatched back to Midway to rescue the rest of the crew and the Walker family. Finally, after 14 months, as the headline of the article announced, the mystery of the wandering minstrel was solved and the remaining living passengers were safe and sound back in Honolulu. Interestingly enough, most of the men still continued to sail, including Captain Walker's sons when they got older. I think a major shipwreck and stranding like that would have caused me to hang up my oars for good, but maybe that's just me. For my last story of the day, I'm taking an article from the Detroit Free Press. On the day thousands of Americans were searching for land to make a better life for themselves and their families, thousands and thousands of other people all over the world were anticipating another huge event that would begin just a short time later. This article is simply titled, The Paris Exposition. Yes, friends, in 1889, the World's Fair was held in Paris, France. The opening sentence of the article says, The arrangements for the official opening of the Paris Exhibition are now complete. The article goes on to describe the music and decorations that would be part of the festivities and opening ceremonies when the fair opened in just two short weeks. There would be exhibits on music and medicine, geography and education, inventions and technology, pretty much every possible new achievement you can imagine. If you wanted the world to know about a new idea, you'd better present it at the World's Fair. That year, the fair lasted for six months, running from May of 1889 to the end of October. The fair coincided with the 100th anniversary of the French Revolution. So even though France had hosted the World's Fair a few other times, that year it was a huge celebration and a lot of prep work and over-the-top decorations went into the festivities. Over the course of the fair, two million people visited the exhibits. However, the most famous attraction of the 1889 World's Fair has remained so popular more than 130 years later that it still gets 6 million visitors every year. Have you guessed what the attraction is? If you guessed it was a tower built by an engineer named Gustav Eiffel, you would be correct. The Eiffel Tower took two years to build and was completed just a month before the opening of the World's Fair. The tower weighs over 10,000 tons. Much of its weight is metal, but there is 60 tons of paint on the structure. That's a lot of paint. Now, even though the structure was a major feat for that time period, somehow nobody died during the building of the Eiffel Tower. There are two and a half million rivets holding the structure together, 
and each rivet took four men to secure in place. Knowing that, I'm impressed that it only took two years to complete the tower. In my travels, I've been to France, but I haven't made it to Paris yet. Someday I'll make it there, and when I do, I look forward to seeing Gustave Eiffel's creation myself. For today's advertisement, I took an ad from the Daily Huronite out of Huron, South Dakota. This advertisement was one of dozens of different advertisements in the four-page paper for different remedies for all kinds of ailments. This specific one is for syrup of figs, manufactured by the California Fig Syrup Company. The description of this product brought a huge grin to my face. Apparently, this product provides a most elegant form of the laxative and nutritious juice of the figs of California. Now friends, I don't know about you, but I've never thought to put the words elegant and laxative in the same sentence. The ad continues on to say that it will cure habitual constipation and, quote, everyone is using it and all are delighted with it. Again, we're talking about laxatives here. Friends, thanks for joining me on this episode of my podcast. Remember to join our Facebook group to see all of my sources and find more information about today's stories and main event. And join me this Thursday for the second mini episode of this podcast, and then again on Monday for another full episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed.